Wherever we go, I have a tendency to talk about the freeways in California. You could always tell a Californian because he always puts a definite article before whatever freeway he's identifying. The I-10. The I-5. The 405. You go anywhere else, they don't put the the there. It's the 10. The 5. But in California, it's the I-5. In Southern California, there's a corridor that runs from the beach cities all the way into San Bernardino. It runs through Orange County, Riverside County, San Bernardino County. It's called the 91 Freeway. And usually it's a parking lot. But one particular afternoon, on a sunny afternoon in Southern California, I had a friend of mine. He was driving down the 91. Windows rolled down, beautiful sunny afternoon. He had his hand on the wheel, his other hand on the, on the driver's side door there, the window open, just enjoying the breeze. Traffic was free-flowing. But he noticed something. There was something up ahead that caught his attention. It was a plastic grocery bag. And it was doing an acrobatic display ahead of him, moving from one lane to another. Very daring for this plastic bag this grocery bag. And it would, go along, it would go along, it would get caught on an antenna, and it would through the wind, and finally it would be set free again to continue its performance. A car would go by, a swoosh of wind would drive that bag over to one lane. Another car would go by, it would drive it to another lane. My friend was watching this, captivated. And then he noticed that this bag was coming over to his lane. And then he noticed it was coming to his side of the lane. And then he noticed the bag, the grocery bag, the white grocery bag, called a T-shirt bag, was coming to his side of the car. And it was within reach. He said in a moment, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, I reached out and grabbed the bag, pulled it inside the car. And he thought, that was epic. Grab. He got to thinking, boy, I, I wonder if anybody caught that. I, I, people aren't going to believe me, I suppose, when I tell them, yes, I actually pulled that bag. They're not going to believe that there was a bag actually floating around because in California, we pay 10 cents for every one of those bags. They're valuable. Somebody's dime was floating around there in the traffic. Nobody's going to believe. But as he was wondering if anybody saw this epic moment, a motorcyclist was driving by, caught my friend's eye. My friend looked over, and the motorcyclist gave him a thumbs up. Yes, somebody caught the epic moment. I got to thinking about all the details that came into place for that epic moment to happen. If my friend left work just a little bit early, if he left work just a little bit late, if he lingered at a light, if the traffic was going just a little faster or a little slower, that epic moment would not have occurred. Now, you and I can't create epic moments. We can't create them. But we can do two things. We can prepare for them. That is, we could say, I'm going to look for those epic moments. And we can purpose to seize them. Purpose to seize them. We can look for them. We can say, when one comes my way, I'm going to seize it. And when you think of all of the details that God puts together to get us into this place and to get us under his word, all the details, all the, all the components so that he could bring truth, not just to our lane, but to our side of the lane and within reach and all that we would reach out and grab it. See, that epic moment for my friend on V91 was not a life-changing moment. Nobody's life was changed because of that. Well, well, okay, it did affect my life somewhat because my wife and I now, when we're driving down the freeway, 
if we see a bag up ahead, the windows are coming down. <laughs> We're going to have our own epic moment. But I love how God, in his, in his marvelous grace and mercy, allows truth to come into our lane. And oh, that I would reach out and grab it and pull it into my life and be changed as a result of it. We'll see that tonight in the the word of God. So you and I know it's no coincidence or accident that we are here, but God in his divine orchestration has us under the sound of the word of God. And tonight, in the moments that we have, I just want to be an encouragement to you, an encouragement. This may be something that that is a reminder to you. For some, it may be something brand new, but I hope it'll be an encouragement to you. My smartphone doesn't have an earphone jack. So he uses Bluetooth technology, even though there's a video that says, yeah, if you take a drill, you could drill a hole in there and use that as an iPhone jack. I don't think so. So I get these earbuds. I have to turn them on. I go to the settings on my phone, go to the, devi- go to the Bluetooth setting, go to devices. Hey, the, the earbuds show up under the list of devices because the earbuds are discoverable to my smartphone. And I click on the device, the smartphone and the Bluetooth earbuds are are paired. I can use my phone as a hotspot. I go to the settings, it says personal hotspot, I click on that. And when I do that, it says your phone is now discoverable as Rob Watkins' iPhone. I love that idea discoverable. I submit to you that God is making himself discoverable. That God is hiding himself in plain sight. Would you look with me, please, to the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. The gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. And while you're turning there, let me just introduce this passage this way. God is making himself discoverable. I just love that. Now, God is making himself discoverable, first of all, through general revelation. The idea of revelation speaks of something that is uncovered. It speaks of something that is unveiled. And God is making himself discoverable to man in, through three realms, three realms of revelation. There's general revelation. You and I would be familiar with this. The book of Romans reminds us that God is revealing himself to man through what God has created. In fact, if all we had was creation, if all we had were the plants, if all we had were the trees, if all we had were the oceans, if all we had were the stars, why they would tell us two things about God. They would tell us, number one, that God exists, and number two, that God is powerful. And that's what we get from creation. And, and any four-year-old knows, any four-year-old knows you cannot, get, you cannot get order out of chaos. There's got to be a designer. There's got to be an orderer. And when man looks at the things around him and sees the intricacies uh, in botany and the intricacies in the animal kingdom and the intricacies in human anatomy, he's got to come to the conclusion, this could not have happened by accident. There must be a designer. Now, if all we had was general revelation through creation, we would not know God's name. We, we perhaps would not know the plan of salvation. And so, and so God, also, God also reveals himself generally, not only through creation, but also through conscience. 
In Romans chapter 2, the Bible speaks of that conscience, that human umpire deep inside of our, of our chest, the one who calls the strikes. When we do something wrong, it's that thing that accuses us. Now, I know that some of that is, a, is shaped by culture. Some of that is shaped by environment. But every man has in him a sense of oughtness that there are things he ought to do, there are things he ought not to do, but often he does the things that he ought not to do and the conscience bothers him. And that conscience is, a, is sort of a foretaste of a day of accountability where we'll stand before Almighty God and give an account. And so there's, there's God revealing himself through creation, there's God revealing himself through conscience so that what's inside of a man resonates with what he sees around him. And the reason why man is guilty is because man rejects that general revelation and man sears his conscience. But if all we had was general revelation, we again wouldn't know God's name. We would not know many of his attributes. So what God did is he gives us not only general revelation through creation and conscience, he gives us special revelation. That's the second type of revelation. Special revelation through the word written, through the word written, the Bible, the word of God. And you and I know, and I've heard your pastor preach this, you and I know that this book is not like any other book on the planet. It is different. It's not a book men could write if they, if they would, and it's a book they would not write if they could. It's a book that is divine. It's got God's fingerprints all over it. Why, from Genesis to Revelation, there is a unity in the Word of God. Written over a period of 1,400 years by over 40 different authors uh, from a variety of continents and from a variety of occupations, and yet there is a unity. You don't find a writer writing later on to correct what was written earlier. They're in agreement all the way through. God has also protected his word. Those who were, who were bent on, on eliminating God's word from their empire unwittingly financed the propagation of the word. I just love that about our God. Perhaps the most compelling evidence, though this book is a powerful book, it transforms us, perhaps the most compelling evidence that this book is a book that came, comes from God, are the prophecies in its pages, the prophecies written with such pinpoint accuracy, it appears as though they were written after the events because they, they depict the events so clearly. I think of Psalm 22. We call it a messianic psalm where the psalmist talks about, about being pierced, about being dehydrated, about crying out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It talks about people gambling for a garment. It talks about crucifixion 500 years before crucifixion was invented, a 1,000 years before Jesus was crucified. I don't understand how a person sleeps at night rejecting all that revelation. I just don't understand. When people say, do you believe the Bible? I say, of course I do. Don't you? So God reveals himself to us, specifically through his word. Here we learn his names. He says, I am, he says, I'm, I am, my name is Jealousy. He, sa- he identifies himself as a jealous God. He identifies himself as long-suffering. He identifies himself as merciful, as gracious, as forgiving, as just, as righteous, as holy. But, but in addition to that, 
we have not only the word written, we also have the word incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Study his teaching, study his life, study his ministry. Get thoroughly acquainted with Jesus. So God has revealed himself to us. Now, people say sometimes in the Old Testament, it's all lightning bolts and thunderclaps and judgment and dark. Ah, no. There are times God talks about how long-suffering he is, how forgiving he is, how patient he is, how merciful he is, how gracious he is, how tender-hearted he is. But in the New Testament, we see Jesus standing on a hill. We see God in the flesh. And now the tears are streaming down his face as we see the heart of God on display as he laments about wayward Jerusalem, wayward Israel. So you want to know what God is like? Study the life and ministry and teachings of Jesus. General revelation, God shows us or makes himself discoverable through general revelation, through creation, through conscience. God makes himself discoverable through special revelation, through the word written and the word incarnate. But then we come to a third area, and we just don't catch this in our Doctrine 101 classes. We just don't catch this in our theology classes. And I don't know why, because it's right here in the book of Matthew, chapter 5. And when you come to chapter 5 of Matthew, you're in the place called the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And some people mistakenly think, well, these are the things you have to do to get to heaven. Heaven is not a paycheck to be earned. It's not a, it's not a prize to be won. It's a, it, instead, heaven is based on a promise, not performance, but on a promise. Not a work we can do, but a work that Jesus has already done. So in Matthew chapter 5, just following the Beatitudes, we come to this great text, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Notice what the Bible says. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Hey, you and I know that the key component of salt that makes it useful is its distinctiveness. Its distinctiveness. But in American, in American Christianity, there is a push to remove that distinctiveness and become more like the world and the culture around us. And I would say it's no wonder then that many people have considered churches non-essential. And, and in a sense, we were cast out to be trodden underfoot of men. But I'm thankful for places where there is still a distinctiveness the places that still love God and want to follow God's will and exalt Christ. So he says, you're the salt of the earth. If the salt is lots of savor, is good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under foot of men. Verse 14, you're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. And now we come to our text. Let your light so shine. Shine like what? Like a candlestick in a house. Let it illumine every area. And this is a mandate. Let your light so shine. This is an imperative. It's not a suggestion. Jesus is telling those who would follow him, let your light so shine. This is a command, an imperative. And then he says this, and you're familiar with the verse, let your light so shine that they may see, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. 
I have five children, three boys and two girls. And when our children were younger, we only had the two at the time. They were like, they were like uh, six and four. And we would go visit my in-laws. And as we were visiting my in-laws, they would play hide and seek with grandpa. And I would count with the kids, he would go hide. And I tell you, he wasn't a very good hider. He'd go into the living room. There's an easy chair there, a recliner. He'd get down on his hands and knees behind the recliner. But the recliner only covered his shoulders. The rest of him was sticking out behind the chair. And I, He's not a very good hider. He should know how to hide better than that. And then it dawned on me, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think he's hiding to be found. And sure enough, my suspicions were confirmed because as soon as we finished counting, my kids went running through the house looking for Grandpa. They readily found him. But oh, when they found him, that's when the laughter began. That's when the tickling began. That's when the memories were made. And I tell you, God hides himself in plain sight. So that when you find him, that's when real life begins. That's when joy begins That's when fulfillment happens. That's where peace is found. And you and I have this great privilege to be involved in the work of making God discoverable to the people around us. And there's a threefold plan. First of all, there's the place the Bible says, let your light so shine before men. That's the place before men. The place is before men. I'll say the place. Would you say before men? I'll say the place. You say before men. The place Let's try it again. The place? That's right. In other words, when we get saved, we don't go off into a compound somewhere and isolate ourselves from everybody. I know in some places of the world, that's a necessity for safety and security purposes. But sometimes we think, oh, life would be wonderful if all I dealt with were Christians and I had a Christian barber and a Christian grocer and a Christian used car, Christian barber and a Christian grocery. Now, there are some godly used car salesmen. I'm so thankful for them. But, you know, that's the way we want. I just want to deal with Christians. But the Bible says we're to make God discoverable before men. There's general revelation, there's special revelation, and there's what we call relational revelation. This is where you and I come in. The place is before men. The place is before men. And so the whole idea is not that we'd go hide off somewhere, but that we would constantly see our role as one of making God discoverable. Now, you look at this, and and if you go through the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 6, you have some warnings about doing things before men. When I was about well, when I was 15 years old, I, I just fell in love with the Sermon on the Mount. So I thought, I want to memorize it. I, I, did it as, I did it kind of in a rebellious way because I would memorize it when I was supposed to be sleeping. I, <laughs> my dad would come in at night. You know, we'd talk, pray. He'd turn out the light. Good night, good night, Dad. As soon as he was out the door, I'm reaching, getting my Bible, getting my flashlight, and memorizing the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you know that'll do something in the heart of a kid to memorize the Sermon on the Mount. But it was, I was supposed to be sleeping. In that sense, it was rebellious. But I got to thinking, what is he going to do? Come in through the, aha, I caught you. What are you doing? Memorizing scripture? Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> Go to sleep afterwards. All right, Dad. 
But you get to Matthew chapter 6, and there are these warnings not to be like the hypocrites or to be like the heathen, because the hypocrites and the heathen, they do their things to be seen of men. They give to be seen of men. They have their reward. They pray to be heard of men. Oh, how spiritual. They pray spiritually so they could be heard of men, and so people will be impressed. Or, or they fast to be seen of men. You know, uh, boy, you're, you don't look so hot. Oh, I'm fasting. I'm fasting. Uh, I'm just miserable. I'm fasting. And people think, wow, that's impressive. That guy's so spiritual. He looks like death warmed over, but he's so spiritual. So we're told in Matthew 6 not to do things to be seen of men. But you know the difference between that and Matthew 5.16. In Matthew 5.16, it's not, it's not all about, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. It's about, look at my God. Look at my God. I'm making God discoverable. Look at my God. Look at my Savior. In Matthew chapter 6, it's all, look at me, look at me. Look how spiritual I am praying. Look how spiritual I am fasting. Look how spiritual I am giving. Look at me. Nah. And in Matthew 5.16, it's, look at our God. Before men, the places before men. The process that God uses. The process is also described here, is it not? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. The process is good works. The place before men. The process, good works. The process, good works. I'll say the process. Would you say good works? The process, good. The process, the place. Okay, good. I'm just checking to make sure we're still together. Amen. So the process is good. Well, what's a good work? A good work is something that makes somebody else's life a little easier. A good work is helping somebody shoulder a burden. A good work. It could be something incidental. It could be something monumental. It could be anything in between. It could be a smile, a smile. You know, there's research done about the value of a smile. We were driving to church one morning. We were running a little bit late, a little bit late. We know that because we hit the traffic light. Every, any other time, if we're getting there early, way early, we don't hit any traffic lights. We go right through them. Uh, they're all green. But when we're late, everything seems to be thrown in the way. And so we're stopped at a traffic light. And I'm looking around. There are other people dressed to go to church. They're not going to our church, but they're dressed to go to church. And, and nobody looks happy about it. Nobody looks happy. We all have gone to our default faces. It's the face we go to by default when all of our muscles are relaxed. Mine looks a little upset. I don't do that on purpose. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I was at a grocery store in Southern California, a 19-year-old kid who's barely seen any of life. He says to me, cheer up, sir. Things could be worse. I said, I will have you know I'm a happy person. Here's a track, because I know you want what I have. <laughs> so we got to work on it. I mean, don't, don't smile like a crazy maniac person. That's just weird. But pleasant. We need to work on being pleasant. Even the, just that, just that simple thing, a good work. Or it could be something monumental. I'm talking to people who know what it is to do things sacrificially. I'm talking to people who know what it is to give to where it costs you something for the sake of the gospel. So the place is before men. The process, good works. And the purpose, you see it here. And glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now let's be careful here. It says, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now let's be careful here. Here's why. Because when I'm familiar with the text, I have a tendency to listen to it with half an ear. And I go to Matthew 5, 16, I'm likely to say, yeah, I know that verse. Yeah, I know it. I quote it. I know it. 
memorized it when I was 15. And so we think, oh yeah, well, we're supposed to glorify God. The Bible teaches us that. And you would be right. The Bible teaches us that we are to glorify God. You can find it everywhere. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 tells us whatever we do, we're to do it for God's glory. What does it mean to glorify God? It means two things. One, it means to make much of God, to make much of God. This is what the psalmist says when he says, great is the Lord, great is the Lord. In other words, God is weighty. God carries weight in my life. God has made an impact in my life. God makes an impact on my day-to-day living and on my decisions. Great is the Lord. And so to glorify God is to make much of God. It's also to put God's character on display, to put God's character on display. You and I glorify God when we put his character on display. But in this text, it's not talking to us as Christians to, about, about glorifying God ourselves. There are plenty of passages that do that, but I want you to listen to the text. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The idea is that as we make God discoverable, people learn things about our God and make much of our God. You know, you work at a place for a while, it's like a family. They know your struggles and they know your successes. And when you are struggling and you're still faithful to God and you're still cheerful and you still commune with him, they see that. And they make much of your God as you've let your light shine before them. They make much of your God. They say things like, wow, your God must be strong. Your God must be real. Your God must be compassionate, because you're compassionate. Your God must be long-suffering, because you're constantly being patient to me. Your God must be merciful, because you're always cutting me some slack. Your God must be approachable. Your God must be available, because you're approachable and available. Is it they would glorify God. The purpose, God's glory, the purpose God's glory. I'll say the purpose, you say God's glory. The purpose. The purpose. Let's go back to the beginning. The place. Good. The process. The purpose. Amen. Got a little quieter. But I just love that. Could something small actually change somebody's life? You hear about it all the time here at First Baptist. As God uses you, to reach people here and around the world. You've heard about it through the history of First Baptist, people that have been impacted by the gospel because of your faithfulness in giving it out. But even just a small task, I remember reading the story of a lady named Carol. Carol went to her favorite coffee shop. It was a drive through barista that was there, and Carol went to pay for her coffee, and the barista said, oh, you don't need to pay for it. The person ahead of you paid for your coffee this morning. She said, why would they do that? And the barista said, just to pay it forward. They just wanted to do something nice for somebody. So Carol says, now when I go to the coffee shop, I look behind me in the rearview mirror to see if the person behind me is worthy of a free cup of coffee. And she said, one day the Lord was speaking to her heart to take care of the coffee order for the person behind her. And she looked in the rearview mirror, and it was a blonde lady, had jewelry glistening in the sun, as she was driving a red convertible, Carol said, that lady should buy me a cup of coffee. But the voice of God was relentless, and 
When it came time to pay, Carol said, and let me take care of the order behind me as well. And then there came that joy that comes from obeying the promptings of the Spirit of God. Well, Carol had some errands to run, so she pulled her car into a spot, and she went and ran some errands. It was real close to where the coffee shop was. And as she went to run the errands, she came back, and there was the lady from the red convertible out of the red convertible, standing by the red convertible, waiting for Carol to come back. So Carol came back, and the lady from the red convertible said, hey, I just want to thank you for getting me, a, getting me a cup of coffee this morning. Carol said, glad to do it, with a twinge of guilt, because it was a struggle all the way, you know. Glad to do it, just paying it forward. The lady said, no, you don't understand how much that meant to me this morning. Carol put the stuff in the trunk of her car, and those two ladies stood out there outside the coffee shop. It's amazing how much those ladies had in common. The lady in the red convertible told Carol how that she and her husband were about ready to lose everything. They had a business partner that just took them to the cleaners and was just stealing from them. They were about ready to lose everything. And in addition to that, their son had succumbed to health issues and, uh, a month earlier. And she said, I was in line thinking about all that was going on and wondering, God, do you care? Give me some kind of indication that you care. And he put it on the heart of a complete stranger to buy me a cup of, cup of coffee. You have no idea what that meant to me this morning. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The place before men, the process, good works. The purpose, God's glory, that they would make much of our God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for its directness. Thank you so many times for its simplicity. Lord, we would pray that wherever we are, that we'd realize we're not isolated. We are constantly coming in contact with people, constantly. So help us, Father, to realize there's a reason for that. There's a purpose for that. It's that you are making yourself discoverable to the people around us. We're part of your plan of you revealing yourself to others. Thank you for general revelation and for special revelation, but thank you that we get to be involved in that relational revelation. So help us tonight. Help us to firm some things up. Help us to be more conscious, more cognizant of the people around us. Help us to see even more clearly it's not about us. It's not our little world. It's no accident you have us working where we work. It's no accident you have us living by the neighbors that we live by. It's no accident that we are part of the family that we're a part of. It's no accident that we're related to the aunts and the uncles and the cousins to whom we're related. It's no accident we stand by somebody or, or sit by somebody on a bus. You want to make yourself discoverable. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. You could think of all of those routine things in your day. The grocery store, the gas station, the car mechanic, the schoolroom, walking to get the mail, 
And in each of those and so many more, God wants to make himself discoverable to your, neighbor, to your neighbors through you. And maybe tonight we'd say, oh, dear God, I've, I forget, I forget. But Lord, by your grace, I will enter into this week with the determination to make you discoverable to others. To others with whom I come in contact. Not just that you'd make yourself discoverable on the mission field, but make yourself discoverable on my block, in my neighborhood. Help me to let others know what you are like. And perhaps you're listening tonight or you're watching tonight or you're here tonight and you do not yet know Jesus as your Savior. But you listened or you, you watched or you came on somebody's invitation, somebody who was making God more clear to you. I'm so thankful for people in my life that did that. And perhaps tonight ought to be the night that you finally settle the issue of where you'll spend eternity. You ought to trust Christ as your Savior. Put your faith and trust in Him. Receive Him. I love the simplicity of the gospel. When a Philippian jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? Paul responded, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou shalt be saved. Perhaps that's what you need to do tonight. Father, we're going to ask you to speak to our hearts and to work in us and help us to do something with what we have heard tonight. And I thank you for the testimony through the years, the First Baptist has of making God discoverable in Christian school ministry, through bus ministry, through missionaries, through a rescue mission, through all sorts of hooks in the water. Then, Lord, it's a new week. Help us to make you discoverable again and still this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.